Let's pray together. Lord, what a blessing it is for all of us to stand here in your presence. And those words that that you command our destiny from the very first breath until the end, Lord. You're here with us, always, no matter where we go, Lord. You're always chasing after us. We just thank you for your love and all that you have done for us, Lord. And just thank you for this time together, Lord, to praise you. And in your holy name we pray, amen. Amen. Would you have a seat? And while you're having a seat, this next clip is probably one of my favorite movie clips. So take a look. I tell him to suit up. I'm bringing the party to you. I, I don't see how that's a party. Dr. Banner. Now might be a really good time for you to get angry. That's my secret, Captain. I'm always angry. I mentioned before the story we're looking at today, story of Jesus walking into the temple courts and clearing things out, which seems a little bit out of character for Jesus. Now, if it was the Hulk, it wouldn't seem so crazy, right? But at the same time, I'm not sure if I've ever seen a portrait of Jesus with him hulking out and his arms are bursting through the sleeves of his tunics. I'm not sure about you. I haven't seen anything like that because that's not how we usually imagine Jesus behaving. And yet this story is crucial to understanding the weak that we know as Passion Week, the one leading up to Jesus' death and resurrection. So in just a minute, we are going to read one of the tellings of that story. It's found in all four Gospels, but we're going to look at the one in Mark, chapter 11, verses 15 through 18. Uh, If you'd like to look it up in the Bibles under your chairs, it's page 772. You're welcome to look that up. But as we prepare to read this story, I do want you to pay attention to how you imagine Jesus going about these actions and saying these words, because our, our imaginations automatically fill in those gaps. But imagine the spirit with which you picture this happening. Pay close attention to that as we take a fresh look. And remember, this is one of the very first things Jesus did, the very first words Jesus said after what we know as the triumphal entry on Palm Sunday when he enters the city of Jerusalem one week before what we now know was the last week of his life on earth before his death and resurrection. This is one of the very first things he does. So would you stand, please, as I read verses 15 through 18. It says this. When they, and they is Jesus and his disciples, when they arrived back in Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out the people buying and selling animals for sacrifices. He knocked over the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves, and he stopped everyone from using the temple as a marketplace. He said to them, The scriptures declare my temple will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. When the leading priests and teachers of religious law heard what Jesus had done, they began planning how to kill him. But they were afraid of him because the people were so amazed at his teaching. 
My friends, this is God's word to us today. Thanks be to God. God, thank you for your word as always. We ask that it would meet us where we are. We want to yield ourselves to your spirit's work to bring us wherever you want us to be. May that be so. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Well, it's interesting, isn't it, that if you notice the the heading of this in our Bible says the clearing of the temple. Some Bible headings say the cleansing of the temple, which is a little bit ironic because for somebody who's clearing things out or doing some cleaning, he sure made a big mess, didn't he? I mean, Jesus walks into the temple courts, he throws over tables, he knocks down chairs, he throws money around, he pushes people out, drives them out. Makes kind of a big mess. Now, to be very clear, before I say another word about this, boys and girls in the room, or chronological adults in the room, I am not giving anyone permission to go home and then clean your room Jesus-style next time you're asked to do it. Pastor Quinn is not telling you to go, start knocking over tables and chairs, take out buckets of Legos, dump them upside down, kick stuff around, and say, my room is clean. That's what Pastor Quinn told me Jesus did. It's not what I'm saying. But it does make the point. If someone's cleaning something, why would he make such a big mess? Well, here's the short version of it. The temple was supposed to be a place where people connected with God in a very special way, in a way unlike any other. And it was supposed to be a place where people who were already part of God's family, the Jewish people, could come, but also a place where those who weren't yet officially part of God's family could come and could begin to grow closer to God and could connect with God in a special way. But it was cluttered in at least two important ways. First, it was physically cluttered. There were several courts on your way to the Holy of Holies in the middle of the temple. The first was this large outer court called the Court of the Gentiles, where basically anyone could go. And then above that was the court for Jewish women, and then above that, the court for Jewish men, and then finally there was the place in the temple where only priests could go, and so on. But this outer court, which was the largest, is the place where everyone would eventually have to go, but especially it was supposed to be a place for those who were not yet part of God's family, but wanted to come closer to God, would go. And it was physically cluttered with places where people were buying and selling sacrifices or animals for the sacrifice, which were part of the religious system of the day. They were also um, at a place where they were, or they, they, were um, uh, they had places set up where they could exchange money. So as people came from other parts of the world, they had Roman money or some other kind of money. They had to exchange them first for temple coins before they could drop those offerings into the temple treasury. So these things actually all were necessary, but they had become a huge market, a huge way of making money, and so they had overrun the place. It was cluttered physically, but more importantly than that, the people who were selling and exchanging were marking up huge profits for themselves and were essentially ripping people off. Honest folks who were coming as a way to draw closer to God and worship God were having it made more difficult for them to do that by the people doing what they were doing because they basically had the say on the matter. You needed these sacrifices, you needed these coins so they could kind of charge what they wanted. And, and so the people were getting ripped off and it was actually difficult, more difficult because of the people who were supposed to make it easier for the people to come and to connect with God. And so when Jesus is driving them out to clear the way, he, in a sense, really is cleaning the place up. And just as a quick side note, this story is for sure a very physical demonstration of Jesus. He, he certainly did walk in. He threw things over. But I don't think we should understand it rightly as some kind of a, an out-of-control, violent rampage. In fact, if you pay close attention to this story and others, it doesn't say Jesus actually touched anybody. Um, he may have. He might not have. But either way, it wasn't some sort of violent, 
out-of-control rampage. And I think that's important as we imagine how this happened and who Jesus is. Now, at the end of the day, the point is this. Because Jesus cares so deeply about people connecting with God, we see in this story that he is willing to do whatever it takes to clear the way and make that connection happen. And I do mean he'll do whatever it takes, as we'll see later. But first, I want to talk just for a few minutes about anger. Of course, in this story, anger is like the background music for the whole scene. It doesn't specifically mention it, but it seems apparent that Jesus was angry. I mean, can you really imagine someone going in and doing this, flipping over tables, knocking over stools, driving people out? If he wasn't angry, it's fair to say he was angry. And the religious leaders for sure were angry. In fact, they were so angry that he had now disrupted their system, their way of making money hand over fist, and their way of keeping status in the community. They were so angry at what he had disrupted that they said this was the last straw. This was the last straw. And now they plan to put him to death. They were for sure angry. Now, anger is just a universal part of being a human being. Everyone feels it. And it's not necessarily a bad thing. All people feel it sometimes. But for many of us, especially in our particular day and age, anger, kind of like with this story, it has become like the soundtrack of our lives. It's become the constant background music, so much so that we almost wouldn't know what to do with ourselves if it wasn't there. We've kind of grown to the point where we're very familiar with living with it, with seeing it in other people. It comes across in the way we speak to one another. It comes across in the way that we drive. It comes across in the way that we most naturally uh, deal with disagreements or conflict. We've grown accustomed to seeing it be the natural posture of those in our highest offices and most prestigious halls. There are a few reasons that people feel anger. First of all, Many of us are prone to feel anger when we feel afraid. When we have something that seems to be a threat to us, whether it's real or imagined, some of us, our first instinct is, in a self-protective way, to get angry. Another reason is what we might call the frustration of the will. Or in other words, when we don't get what we want, we get angry about it. Sometimes we turn to anger because things in the world or in us are not the way we wish they were and we're so frustrated about it, we can't help but react in any other way besides anger. But we all feel anger. The key is figuring out where does it come from and then what to do with it. Because in this story, clearly there was a difference between the anger of Jesus and the anger of these religious leaders. And there was a huge difference in what it led them to do. So with us, while anger may simply be a part of life, The real work is this, us discerning where it comes from, and then most of all, what we will do with it. That's what makes all the difference. Now I'd like to talk just for a few minutes about love. Probably not a huge surprise to hear that the Bible says an awful lot about love. And in a few key passages, we get a really clear description of what God's kind of love looks like in action. One of the most well-known One of the classics is 1 Corinthians chapter 13, where Paul says this about love. He says, love is patient. Isn't it interesting that the primary description here of love is of being unhurried. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It does not demand its own way. It always hopes, never gives up, never fails. 
The Bible also says some interesting things about love in terms of a person, because what it says in 1 John chapter 4 is that God is love. So core to who God is, is this, love. Just like God is good and just. So hold that here, and then also consider this, the entire New Testament, from the beginning of the Gospels, through the letters that we call the epistles, through the end of Revelation, it makes the case that Jesus is God. That when we see Jesus, we fully see God in person and on full display. Now, if you put those together, what that means is whenever we see Jesus do anything, whenever we read of Jesus saying anything, we are seeing love embodied to the fullest measure. And what's more, the Bible says that Jesus was fully God, but he was also fully human, and that he was tempted in every way we were, yet was without sin. That's how Hebrews 4 puts it later on. So in light of all that, plus what we said a few moments ago about anger, this story tells us something very, very important that we need to recognize, which is that sometimes love gets angry. And apparently that's not always a bad thing. Among other things, this does confirm that anger is not necessarily a bad thing. It's just part of being human. Although for us as fallen human beings, the reality is dealing with danger is a little bit like playing with fire, which is why there's also several warnings in the scriptures teaching us what to do with that anger. For example, in Ephesians 4, it says, be angry, but do not sin in your anger, which wouldn't have to be said if that wasn't our natural tendency. James chapter 1 says, everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. And that's because while it is true that sometimes love gets angry, not all anger comes from love. For example, in this story, it's clear that the religious leader's anger was not out of love. Their anger came from a place of selfishness. They felt threatened because of the way in which Jesus was disrupting their system that was set up to really keep them in control and to keep them quite wealthy, quite powerful. They were not getting their way. They were not getting what they wanted. And so they reacted in anger and it caused them to do harmful, damaging things, which of course is the problem with human anger. That's the reason for the warnings. It tends to come from a place of sinful selfishness, and it tends to lead us to do damaging and harmful things to one another. That's the reason for that warning in James 1. Human anger does not usually produce the righteousness that God desires, at least not on its own. Now compare that, the religious leader's anger, to Jesus' anger. Because clearing, the clearing of the temple that he did, he did because people were being mistreated. The way was blocked and cluttered for them to know God and connect with him personally. And it made him angry. And remember, whenever we see Jesus do anything or say anything, we are seeing love acted out in its fullest. So Jesus was acting in this story too, in other-centered love, not self-centered sin. So what we witness here is not some kind of out-of-control temper tantrum about not getting his own way. Pastor Quinn's not giving you the right to do that either. But instead, we are seeing here a purposeful demonstration that he would do whatever it took to clear the way for people to connect with God, even if it meant putting himself at risk, which it did here. By his actions, by uncluttering the way, by cleansing the temple, he essentially sealed his own fate. So for us, anger is not necessarily a bad thing, but neither can we simply do whatever we want in the moment when we feel angry, because contrary to the way we most often act in our anger from a purely human perspective, when love gets angry, it gets angry about the right things. And that may or may not be true about our our anger 
which is why it's best to test the motives for our anger and what we think we might want to do with it when we feel it, no matter how often that might be. In a practical way, we can simply ask the Holy Spirit to help us understand what we're angry about and what we should do about that. We can go to the scriptures and see what wisdom we might glean there. There's a lot of it. We might go to those we are in community with and ask them to process these kinds of things with us and help us decide the right thing to do. Because it could be that we are angry about the right things. That's possible. Sometimes love does get angry. But even then, it's not just about doing whatever we want or whatever we feel in the moment. Instead, it's about channeling our loving anger through our faith in Jesus and then turning that into a passionate pursuit of good. That's what I think loving anger looks like at its best. It is a passionate pursuit of good. I like to think about this channeled intensity we see in some people towards a particular mission that they will see done in the world. A few weeks ago, my wife Lydia and I saw the movie A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, the movie where Tom Hanks starred playing the role of Mr. Rogers, which is funny. I was thinking, I mentioned last week another movie that we saw recently. It might give you the impression we see movies all the time. Let me just make this clear. We have young kids in the house. Those are basically the only two movies we've seen in the last 10 years. <laughs> Thankfully, they were good ones, but all right, it's not quite that bad. But, um, so when you think about Mr. Rogers, I hope he was a childhood hero of yours. If he isn't, uh, if he wasn't, it's not too late. Those can still be found out there. They're terrific. But when you think about Mr. Rogers, what do you think of? Well, for me, the first thing I think of is someone who is patient and unhurried. Someone who is kind. Someone who is not boastful or proud or rude and does not demand his own way. Someone who just exudes love through and through. But here's the thing. A lot of people don't know Mr. Rogers actually had a dangerous side. That was that, and this is true. Uh, this is a, uh, an article I read a couple of years ago. That was the title of it, and it caught my attention, which is why we were interested in seeing this movie. It's why I want to see the documentary that was made about Fred Rogers a couple of years ago. Whether you know it or not, Fred Rogers, after graduating from high school, went on to college. He got a degree in music, and then he actually pursued a divinity degree, and he became an ordained pastor who, a little bit later down the road, lived out his sense of God-directed calling by creating the show we know and love as Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. But I learned in this article that it was his first encounter with the then-new format of television that changed his life. He recalled watching a man on TV get a pie thrown in his face, and the audience all laughed, and he was furious about it. He said, this is how we're supposed to entertain children. This is what we're now going to use to sell to children and endlessly market to them. And he was furious about it. But then Fred Rogers funneled his anger through his Jesus-centered faith, and that produced a channeled intensity, a passionate pursuit of good in the world that came across unmistakably as the deepest of loves. You can't watch that man speak and not feel loved. The writer of this article put it this way, Given Rogers' kindly public persona, it's easy to forget the simple truth that anger over how the world treated children was a driving force in his life, along with his deep and genuine faith in Jesus. And so I think about Fred Rogers as just one example, though for sure a remarkable one, but still just as one example of what loving anger funneled through a Jesus-centered faith can produce in the world when it ends in a passionate pursuit of good. And of course, Jesus is that same thing only taken to its fullest. 
My guess is you're familiar with the title of a film Mel Gibson put out about 16 years ago called The Passion of the Christ. A movie that focuses really just on the hours and days before Jesus' death on the cross, and it's, it's just incredibly graphic in its portrayal of what Jesus suffered. If you were to go to the dictionary and look up the word passion, the first thing you would probably find is a technical definition, an intense desire or enthusiasm for something. But following right after you would find this, suffering and death of Jesus. The very word passion is defined as Jesus suffering and dying for us. Because coming from a place of selfless love, Jesus took the anger he was feeling at the way being blocked for people to connect with God, and he channeled it into the most loving and powerful act in human history by laying down his life to pay for our sins, to clear the way for us to connect with God personally, powerfully, and permanently, doing away with sin once and for all. What started in this story where Jesus cleared the temple ended at the cross where Jesus showed the full extent of his love by laying his life down in our place, truly clearing the way for us to connect with God. Because ultimately, the barrier was not just people buying and selling and exchanging in the temple courts. The real barrier between us and God was the sin and rebellion that each of us knows personally because we've acted in it, we've done it, we've owned it. That's how we've lived. And that creates a separation between us and God. But because Jesus cares so much about people connecting with God, he has in fact done exactly what it was going to take to make that connection happen again, which is to do what we could not, live the life we couldn't, and therefore pay on our behalf the penalty we rightly owed so that we could freely come to God in an uncluttered path. That loving demonstration, that powerful act to clear the way remains for us even today, a free gift and an invitation only needing to be received But like any invitation, it does need to be received and responded to. And so if you're here this morning and you've never personally responded to this love shown to us through Jesus, or maybe you're here today and you have, but you've allowed lots of other things, maybe even lots of sin to clutter the way over the years, I want to invite you today, whether for the first time or in a fresh new way, to simply receive that gift that Jesus in such a costly way paid for, for us. The gift of forgiveness and a fresh start with God to connect with him personally, powerfully, and permanently. To receive a gift called eternal life. So if you've ever felt that disconnect between you and God, like the way was just too cluttered with stuff, whether it be complicating matters or the issues of our own baggage from sin and guilt in the past, I've got good news for you. This story shows us that Jesus is willing to and in fact did do whatever it takes to clear the way for us to know God. And so as we share in some time of prayer together, I can offer a little bit more space than we usually do at the end of a sermon to pray quietly, personally between you and God about whatever way you and I may need to respond to this. I'd like to invite the band to go ahead and come forward now as we prepare to pray together. But I'll lead us in a time of a few pauses where we can simply respond to the Lord in whatever way we need to this morning. So let's pray. Well, gracious God, for the goodness of this news and this story, despite its seeming strangeness on the front end, we give you great thanks. And I ask that for my friends in the room, no matter how they come today, whether never having received this 
incredible gift of your love for us to receive forgiveness of our past and a free, clear path to know you now and forever. Or for my friends who are in the room, but the reality of that connection with you has gotten cluttered by lots of things, whether sin we've picked back up, whether all kinds of other things that perhaps have gone on in the world or to us directly, or even just straight old hard-hearted cynicism that's slowly grown over the years for whatever it is. In this moment of quiet, we take some space and respond to you personally in whatever way we need to. very good of you, Lord, to get angry about something like this, something cluttering the way for us to know you. Whether it be sellers and exchangers of money in a temple courts, or most importantly, the sin that so easily entangles us, that you would be angry about that and act in loving anger to clear the way for us to know you is for sure more than we deserve. We thank you for that. We want to receive that in a new and real way today. So help us to help us to be assured that this good news is indeed true. May we live in its freedom and joy in Jesus' name. Amen.